Welcome to the Globig Podcast, where we talk to international expansion experts from around the world to make it faster and easier for you to take your business global. Hello, I'm your host, Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. Today's hot topic is all about U.S. research and development tax credits. Our guest today is Joe Stoddard, a partner at Ide Bailey, specializing in U.S. research and development tax credits. And Ide Bailey is one of the top accounting firms in the U.S. Welcome, Joe. It's really great to have you as a guest on the Globig podcast. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Joe, tell us a little bit about the work that you do at Ide Bailey. Yeah, so I, like as you mentioned, I'm a partner uh, with Ide Bailey. I'm part of our national tax office. Um, my special my my specialization is R and D tax incentives. So, me and and my group, we help our clients identify activities that that qualify for these tax credits, and then document those those credits. So, I think that's start for those of us like me that just know a little bit or maybe not enough or just enough to be dangerous what exactly is r&d tax credits or tax incentives i've heard them say what are they and are they just a u.s um tax incentive or are they global yeah i'll start with the second part of your question these are these are global most countries have some kind of r&d tax incentive what are they? It's really, um, th these incentives are designed to encourage and incentivize companies to perform R&D within a given jurisdiction. So here in the U.S., you know, the, the government provides several different types of incentives, the main one being a tax credit that can be a dollar-for-dollar -dollar tax offset to encourage companies to do their R&D in the U.S. as opposed to pushing those offshore to another country. Similarly, other, other countries would have um, the same motivation. The, the, the credits and incentives are structured differently as you look across the, the globe, but the idea would be to incentivize companies to, number one, do R&D so that it promotes innovation and that sort of thing, but also, again, to keep those R&D investments within, a, within that country or jurisdiction. And is this usually a national program or are there also state incentives? So there's usually both. So here in the U.S., it's a national, what we call the federal R&D credit. Most U.S. states also have an R&D credit. Um, so, and, and that that would be similar across the globe. There's these are usually national credits, and then within each country, there may be state and local um, incentives as well. And what what do they consider uh, R&D? Like, what kind of activities are really you know that that will qualify for? Uh, research and development. Yeah, and, and again, it's a little different definition as you look across the different countries. Here in the U.S., one thing that I will say is that most people hear the term R&D, and in their mind, they, they they have a picture of what that looks like. You know, it, it usually involves mm -hmm. someone in a white lab coat and using test beakers and a Bunsen burner, and and certainly that type of R&D would would qualify for the credit. But it's it's much broader than that. Lots of different things um, that you may not think of when you first hear R&D do qualify for the credit. Can um, you share some examples? Like, um, so we do a lot of work with technology companies. What sort of things do they do that might be considered research and development? 
Yeah, I kind of like to look at them in three different categories or buckets in terms of activities. So the first one would be product R&D. Product R&D could be brand new product development. So you have a software company developing a new software product, um, other types of companies. In fact, a lot of companies that claim this credit in the US are manufacturing companies. So kind of a generic example, but developing a brand new widget would qualify but also improvements to existing products qualify. So enhancements, improvements, um, better, faster, stronger, that sort of thing would, would also qualify. The, the second bucket would be process R&D. So again, going back to the manufacturing company example, uh, coming up with a, a new manufacturing process, making improvements to an existing process to make it more efficient, to reduce waste, that sort of thing. Um, designing tooling and fixturing and dyes for a manufacturing process. These are all things that can qualify. So a lot of what we all do, I mean, we have a software as well. And so all of those um, activities, if you will, would potentially qualify for this, right? Exactly. One thing I want to point out with software, and that's really the third bucket. So we have product, process, and software. On the software side, It doesn't have to be software that that you're selling or licensing to third parties, but even software that's used internally, whether that's kind of a software as a service type of model or even just software you're using to run your operations um, can potentially qualify. So lots of opportunities on the software front for sure. And you had mentioned one thing earlier and that was the, um, the incentive is so that you do your software development, your product development, your manufacturing, processes and that sort of thing in the U.S. So if you outsource your software development, for example, or things like that, so that wouldn't qualify. Is that what you're... Exactly. For the U.S. credit, um, if you use a a firm in India to help with your software development, those costs would be excluded. Any any people or activities happening in the U.S. would be the, the, uh, the portion that would be credit eligible here in the US. Okay, that makes sense. Um, What sort of expenses would that entail? Is it just the development costs themselves or does it also include the your employees that you have to have to produce those things to do the background information gathering, you know, all those things? There's, there's three types of costs that qualify for the credit in the US. Not to say that there aren't other R&D expenses out there that the companies incur, but they have to be either wages or supplies or what's known as contract research to qualify. So most, for most companies, the biggest driver of this credit is the wage piece. If you look at the averages, 71% of the expenses that are claimed for the R&D credit are employee wages. Mm-hmm. So it's really based on the the time people are spending on qualified activities. But then you can add on top of that supplies, you know, for prototyping, for example, um, testing and that sort of thing. And then the, the contract research piece would be anything that's outsourced to a third party. Um, again, that, that third party has to be in the US, but to the extent you're using a, an outside firm to do some testing, for example, you could include the, uh, a portion of those costs for the credit as well. That's fantastic. So obviously, I would imagine keeping track of everything you do is probably pretty important, right? So what sort of 
you know, is it a, is it really a good idea from the very beginning to kind of really document everything, or can you go back after you've done this to kind of see like what might qualify? Or the answer to both questions would be yes. You know, it's a good idea to keep contemporaneous records of what what's going on. But a lot of companies um, at the end of the year or the reporting period will look back and 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 piece together some documentation and support. It, documentation is important. Um, there is no specific record keeping requirement for the US credit, which is both the good news and the bad news. You know, the good news is you have some reasonable flexibility to, to document things in a way that makes sense for you. But at the same time, you know, we don't have a, a good roadmap from the Internal Revenue Service or the IRS to really show exactly what types of records need to be kept. So our, our companies in the US are, are going at it a little bit blind, but that's where I guess folks like me come into play since we work with the credit on a day-to-day -day basis and work with the IRS on this, we can give some guidance on, on how a particular company can, can retain and gather some documents to, to support the credit. Does it have to be approved? So whatever you're proposing um, needs to go through some sort of an approval process or just because you say that, all right, here's some things that we think qualify, will it be accepted that way? So there, there is no formal approval process for the federal credit. Now, some of the states have, have a, a kind of a pre-certification process and an approval process. But for the federal credit, you claim the credit, and then that would just be subject to future audit. And certainly mm -hmm. not all, they don't all get audited, but there's that potential. So that's why you'd want to have that documentation in place so that if the IRS ever wanted to see that support, you'd have it ready to go. Yeah. So then, okay, let's say, let's say that you've got um, $100,000 in what you think is legitimately R&D or certainly should qualify for this. How does that then get applied? Is it a dollar for dollar or how do you, how is that calculated? So it's a little bit of a complicated answer and I won't go into all the specifics, um, but it's one concept that's important is that it's an incremental credit. So if you're computing the credit for, let's say, 2017, you don't look at 2017 in a vacuum. You have to compare your 2017 expenses to what you've historically spent on R&D. Now, the good news is there's, there's a couple different ways to, um, to compute that, that base amount. So as a, as a rule of thumb, kind of cut to the chase, you're going to get a credit if you have R&D expenses typically that qualify and the range of the actual tax savings is usually between five to eight cents on the dollar. So we'll, we'll typically see that $100,000 of expenses example you gave equate to somewhere in the neighborhood of five to $8,000 of, of dollar for dollar tax offset. Okay, so that's really helpful. But is there is there a, a minimum that you need to be able to? So can smaller companies also take advantage of this, or is this really something that's primarily um, for larger companies and larger spends, if you will? Yeah, there's no minimum. So it's really you know from a cost benefit standpoint, you know if the credit is a thousand dollars, you're going to spend more time and effort and fees to to a professional services firm to analyze that. Then it's probably worth it. Um, so, I I do want to make another point though. A lot of times with the state credits. So if you're in a state that offers a generous R&D credit, mm -hmm. um, it makes the cost benefit equation work out a lot better because you can you can double dip. You get both the federal and the state credit, and that's really where 
you know, you don't need as nearly as many dollars to, to make it work. Okay. Is there, is there some sort of a threshold you think like, all right, if you have at least X dollar amount in R and D, or at least you think so, then it's probably worth spending the time and money, but anything underneath, maybe not. Yeah, I would, and it's not a hard and fast rule, obviously, but I would mm -hmm. think if you think if you can get to at least fifty thousand dollars of expenses that you think might qualify, that's where it's probably worth having a discussion and, and looking a little bit deeper. Um, can I make another, I guess, related comment for small businesses that I, I don't want to forget about? Mm -hmm. um, there is a new rule in the U.S. that allows um, startup companies to be able to use the credit to offset their payroll tax. And a little bit of background there. In the past, you've only been able to use the R&D credit to offset uh, income tax. And, right. and many start, many startup companies don't pay any income tax. Right. You know, they operated a loss for their first few years. So this new rule that just came into effect last year allows those companies to now offset their payroll tax. So as long as you have employees, you can get some immediate cash benefit from the credit. So that's, that's a big change that that is uh, very helpful for those uh, startup companies. Absolutely. And and what sort of qualifications are around being a startup? Is there a certain number of years or a certain amount of income? Or um, can anyone pretty much say if they're a couple of years old, they can say they're a startup? Or Yeah. And, and as with most uh, rules that we have from the U.S. tax code, it's <laughs> fairly complex. But to kind of put it into some rules of thumb, if you've been around for less than five years, you're certainly going to qualify as a startup mm -hmm. and you have to have less than $5 million in revenue in the year you're making that, that payroll um, offset. So just from a practical standpoint, if you started in 2013 or later and are less than 5 million in sales, you would, you would qualify as a, as a startup. Okay. That's super helpful. And I think obviously a lot of companies and certainly a lot of our listeners would definitely qualify. So this is something that they, could really benefit from. Um, is there any sort of a cap on the amount of credits a company can receive? Like, let's say, you know, especially a startup, as you know, it's almost, it feels like it's almost all R&D, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And, and so for the federal credit, the overall, there is no cap on the amount of credit a company can claim. For that payroll tax offset we talked about, that you do have to cap that piece at $250,000 of credit. So you have to have a lot of expenses to get to $250,000. Mm -hmm. um, on the state, some I, I do want to mention that a lot of states do have a cap. So that you know, a particular state might have $5 million of total credit they're going to hand out. So those states, there is it is a little bit more limited, while, while other states, it's a really kind of an open-ended credit. What are some of the states that you know for sure have, you know, list a couple of the main ones that you know, are they usually the kind of startup states that we all think of, you know, like the Californias and the, you know, states like that, or is it really surprising where you get the credits? I guess the thing I would say on that is assume, assume your state has an R&D, some sort of R&D incentive. Um, now, certain states don't have any, any income tax, and so you're not going to get an R&D right. incentive in Florida, or sorry, not Florida, uh, um, Nevada, for example, um, or South Dakota. Washington State does not currently have an R&D incentive. The other states, though, I, I will mention California just because, you know, it's such a big economy in California. Mm -hmm. The California credit is... is you typically get a similar benefit for the federal credit. 
So that rule of thumb I used earlier of, of five to eight cents on the dollar, the, your, the California credit would be a would be a similar benefit. So you almost double it, really, right? Yeah. And in certain states, you you go you you do even better. So in Arizona, your R and D credit can be double, almost double the federal credit. So um, you know you you might be a you know eighteen cents on the dollar when you get both the federal and state credit in Arizona. So yeah, there's certainly some some very generous state credits out there that that shouldn't be ignored. Absolutely, that's really good to know. Um, did the new tax reform that came into effect in January this year in 2018 did that have any sort of impact? Are there any things that might um, be related to this at all? The the good news with tax reform is that the R and D credit was retained, um, while many of the other special tax credits and, and deductions that were targeted were eliminated in tax in tax reform. So the, the credit uh, remains a viable uh, benefit here in the US. Um, the Congress did make a change to your ability to expense your R&D costs. Um, the prior tax code allowed you to expense 100% of your R&D costs as they're incurred. This doesn't, this doesn't come into play right away, but in, starting in, in year 2022, you'll be required to capitalize and amortize your R&D expenses over a five-year period. And if you have foreign R&D, those expenses would be capitalized over 15 years. So further punishing companies that choose to incur costs overseas. Now we have a lot of time between now and 2022, so who knows what might change between now and then. But uh, right. as of right now, the, the, there is gonna be kind of a, a less generous treatment of R&D costs here in a few years. And is there anything that anyone needs to do? So none of that would really apply to anything you're doing right now. It's just something to pay attention to that it will come into effect later. Is that correct? Or do things kind of get, like you were saying, there's some amortization thing issues. So is there any sort of impact right now that you have to think about in the future? Yeah, as of right now, nothing immediate. But um, the IRS, knowing that you're going to have to capitalize those expenses instead of being able to currently deduct them, they're going to start paying a lot more attention to how companies are classifying their R&D and are they properly identifying those expenses. Hmm. So, you know, since we have a few years to, until this comes into play, it's probably good to, to set up your accounting systems to better track, you know, those departments and cost centers that are, in current, that are, that are performing R&D so you have your records kind of in line with what's going to be more of a, a focus of reporting down the road. Right, because we all know it goes much faster than we think, doesn't it? Exactly, yep. <laughs> um, I know we talked a little bit about documentation, but what are you suggesting to your clients as far as, you know, is there you know, a way that you suggest they pay attention really like every month, they kind of go back and make sure that they split the, and, and actually this is a really interesting question, is do you need to split the, here's some things that we're doing to our current product versus here's some time that we're spending on new things. Like, is there, you know, is there a way of, of documenting that would be super helpful? Yeah. And there is no one size fits all. Um, to the extent, you know, you have a time tracking system and know at least how people are spending their time in terms of different activities or projects, that's super helpful, but not required. Um, many, <laughs> Many companies, when they hear time time tracking or timekeeping, outside of public public accounting, of course, um, are going to cringe and and <laughs> have a hard time getting your employees to do that. 
so any but any kind of contemporaneous record you know whether this is monthly or quarterly even even some informal um, gathering of data in terms of to your point you know different projects people are working on that's that's going to get you a, a pretty 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 far down the path in terms of you know documenting the credit you know that, that's just one piece too you know and you know you're going to want to understand what people are working on but also the fact the projects themselves we, we're not going to get into it on this discussion but there's some specific criteria that need to be met for the credit so you know kind of consulting with your tax professional in terms of the, some of the some of the details of that of those definitions and what you can do to capture that is another another good idea mm, good advice is there anything else that companies should know around you know really about how to prepare, what to think about, things that might qualify um, that I just haven't asked you about yet. Yeah, I mean, I think the other, I think, important concept around this whole documentation piece is, um, and, I, and I may mention that there's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. I would always try to keep in mind the whole cost-benefit of, of what's going on. You don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time and effort and fees to, a, to an advisor to document a small credit. Mm-hmm. So if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of R&D costs, you're going to want a fairly robust process and documentation in place because um, your risk profile is, is fairly high if the IRS or a state would, would want to poke and prod at that credit. But if you're claiming a, a relatively modest credit every year, you know, maybe $10,000, $20,000 of credit, um, just just keep that in mind, I guess. You don't. You can do a modest amount of documentation to support that. So. Right. And that's what we help our clients do also is, hey, let's let's make sure the amount of effort is right size for the, the benefit being being obtained. Okay, that that's really great advice. So if someone wants to learn a lot more about this topic and um, kind of explore this and see whether this is something that they want to pursue, what would you suggest and how, where, where should they go to get some more information? Probably the best thing to do is just point you to our website. So that's at idbailey.com. We have some information on the R&D credit. And then, of course, contact information for myself, and you can reach out to me directly, and we can have a discussion. So that's probably the best best uh, source I can point you to. Fantastic. We'll make sure that we list that and the supporting blog, blog article so everyone can see how to reach you and how to read the, you know, the articles that are related and any sort of other things that you have. So I think that's a really great um, kind of next step, if you will. And... Um, Joe, I want to thank you so very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you. And again, these are areas that are just really challenging for us. And unless you're really involved in day to day, it's it's tough to know, right? Absolutely. I really appreciate you inviting me on this. This has been fun. Absolutely. So for our listeners, make sure that you go to the globig.co website. Um, it's your one-stop international expansion marketplace. Lots and lots of free resources, training, planning tools, and obviously these excellent experts like Joe from around the world. And also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more fantastic international expansion podcast tips.